we'll just pretend we've started right now. Oh, actually, this is an important question. I realized I don't know that I've ever had to say your first name out loud in front of you. Is it Bayard or is it Bayard? It's Bayard. Okay. Uh, but it is one of those things that uh, it's probably like your last name, Jason, that I've had it mispronounced my whole life. So I, don't even, I don't even recognize it anymore, but it is Bayard. Okay. But feel free to fuck it up. It doesn't matter. Okay, got it. Got it. And it, it's Mojica, by the way. There you go. J is an H. It's, I, I, thought, I thought, I thought, J I thought is, it was. J is in jalapeno. There you go. Uh, Jay is an <laughs> Fired as in tired. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of the Almost Monthly Modernist Society. I'm Jason Mojica in New York. I'm Eric Attens in Chicago. Uh, so we haven't done an episode in a few months. Uh, what have you been up to, Eric? Time flies. If you told me it was three months or like we were more like one and a half, I would have believed you. Probably the main thing is uh, sold a condo, bought a house and moved. So, I mean, I, I think people do that. It's not like that hard, but it does eat all of your time. So that's what I've been up to. Yeah. Again, I'm sure everyone deals with this, but we were moving out of a one bedroom and moving into a house. So a part of, you know, I mean, you're trying to like handle, there's just all this like just paperwork and, and, you know, countless follow-up questions and you, you know, you got to get, you know, a lawyer involved and your realtor and the mortgage people. And there's just, it's, it's like a full-time job. And then constantly interrupted by trying to show your one bedroom in, keep it in this like ideal state that Mm -hmm. like someone comes to see it and you're like, no, I don't work in the living room. Like there's tons of room here. So like, I, you know, the realtor would be like, can you show it three? And I would literally like hide all of the, my gear and wires and the ethernet that I run from the bedroom into the living room and tied, tuck the monitors and, and so I have to start at like two thirty, and then I come back at like three thirty, and then I have to like account for the last hour of work that I've not done. And then, uh, also there's like COVID. So that just made everything crazier. So, mm-hmm. oh, and then I had nowhere to go during that time. Like I can't be sitting around the apartment twiddling my thumb. So I would go hide in the laundry or storage room on occasion with a beer, uh, one time of which the realtor and the two prospective buyers like walked in and I was like, like wild eyed, like trying to run out the back door. So, uh, yeah, that's what I've been, that's what I've actually been doing for the past few months. Nice. Nice. And, um, you know, in preparation for moving most people, they try to get rid of stuff. How many records did you buy during this time? (laughs) <laughs> I kind of behaved. I put, well, during the hard times for me, I already put anything of potential $15 plus value is long gone. So I did a big haul. I, I wanted to ditch all my CDs and I ditched a good couple crates, but it's, I still, I have so many CDs just from playing in bands and just getting things that I didn't even buy. And I tried to remind myself, like, I think everyone's parents got rid of all the stuff that they thought was for sure totally dumb, which are all of the items that their kids definitely wanted, mm-hmm. like 10 years after they just got rid of them. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I'm moving into a house with a basement. So if anyone wants my giant, is it cash of third wave ska CDs? I'm holding. <laughs> so <laughs> I know. I have been busy with, uh, well, I started cheating on you and I launched a weekly podcast called Buy This Comic, which is, um, I had to do because you don't care about comics. So, you know, I, I have, I have needs 
that I need to fulfill. And uh, so it, <laughs> so this, this podcast is meant to encourage the transfer of wealth from comic book fans to comic book creators. Um, and then also my wife and son and I, we started a little family business called Hey Kids Comics, uh, one part of which is a kid's graphic novel subscription service. So that's been fun. I think that it's because I've been thinking so much about what it takes to start a business and how one finds customers and how you build it in such a way that you actually enjoy running it that I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone who's done all of those things quite successfully. I need to unbutton my pants so I can really like <laughs> diaphragm. That stays in. <laughs> Uh, as you heard in the cold open, our guest this week is Bayard Winthrop. He's the founder and CEO of American Giant, which is a San Francisco-based clothing company that specializes in A, making stuff really well, and B, making it in the United States of America. American Giant is probably best known for what is considered by many to be, quote, the greatest hoodie ever made, unquote. And when I say considered by many, I'm not just using a weasel word. I am one of the many. Uh, it is the greatest hoodie ever made. In fact, I own three of them, plus an old crew neck version I had to get used on eBay. And I also have one of their jackets and a pair of jeans I've worn into the ground. So uh, yeah, I'm a fan. American Giants has been going for about 10 years now, but before that, Bayard ran Chrome, Freeboard, Atlas Snowshoe, and in the heady days of the dot-com boom was the president and CEO of WebChat, which was a big online community that was acquired by InfoSeek right before AOL started dominating that space. And no one even knows what InfoSeek is anymore. So anyway, or AOL. There's like a, we are the perfect age that there's a weird nostalgia for like AOL chat rooms. Like that's like a <laughs> sub, like there's enough people that like missed that in a weird way. Do you think there are, AO, like AOL chat room emulators? I think you just, if not, then I think <laughs> you hit on something Let's that, start that could company. be made. Let's basically just like take Twitter's API and funnel it into like an AOL skin and it'd be like a perfect Christmas gift for your grandma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we'll see. It's April. We have time to develop that and get that out. We Christmas. send you like a CD in the mail that you don't use. It just like makes you feel happy when you get it. Uh, um, in short, he's a super interesting guy who's been an incredible innovator, not only in direct consumer businesses, but also in breathing new life into at least one area of American manufacturing. All right, let's go talk to buyers. Hello. Jason, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? It's going good. It's been a long time. I think the last time I saw you was in uh, down in the southern part of Manhattan. That is like, correct. Where was that place? I don't know. Somewhere near the financial district. It was just uh, you were in between meetings, and so I came over to see you. That's all. Yeah, it's good seeing you. Hey, Eric. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for joining nice us. Nice to meet you too. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, you know, I think the first thing that comes up uh, when you search your name is an article about your schedule. And if I'm not mistaken, this is your lunch hour. Is that still this is my this, this is my lunch hour. So yeah. Are we standing between you and lunch? You are not. Oh. Um, you are not. But thank you for for uh, for asking. That you're not. <laughs> well, I'm just worried that you're going to be hungry and grumpy during this whole. <laughs> I'd probably be grumpy oh. uh, and maybe even hungry, but. Uh, 
I'll do my best. Okay, <laughs> excellent. What's the? Sh- give me the short version, or give our listeners the short version of what it is you do. Well, um, about ten years ago, I started a company called American Giant uh, with a pretty basic idea, which is that uh, the apparel industry has um, really lost its way. It's it has become complicated and and in my judgment, pretty irresponsible. And and uh, I wanted to build a uh, a clothing company that was entirely made in America um, of kind of the highest quality and take advantage of a lot of the advancements we've seen in manufacturing capabilities and technology and and the internet to drive that opportunity forward. And we started out with a sweatshirt and uh, it was, you know, over 10 years ago, hard to believe. And, um, and the business is a lot bigger now and we make blue jeans and jackets and t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. But, but really the same idea has remained consistent, which is, uh, a, a simple set of values, make stuff here, make it really, really well, know the people and the places that make the stuff that you produce, uh, be intimately involved with that process and have the result be better products and, um, and a set of values that, that at least we think are, um, uh, uh, more appropriate for the way that things ought to be, the way the business ought to be conducted these days. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, what's the earliest origin of the idea for American Giant? I mean, when did this idea cross your mind and why did it cross your mind? You know, I think in some ways, the though it probably wasn't frontal lobe kind of stuff, but I started off my career in the, in the early 90s in, in corporate finance. And I did that because I felt, I think, as a kid, kind of economically insecure and wanted to make money and eventually got a job in a, you know, a, a well-regarded bank and realized almost immediately like, holy shit, this is the wrong thing. I'm not smart enough. I don't care enough about it. Um, but I did that for a couple of years and along the way got exposed to some businesses. One in particular, I don't know if you know that film, that film company, IMAX, that makes the big format films. Mm-hmm. I met those guys and found myself almost getting, you know, hit by a two by four, like, whoa, you can go make things for a living. And you know, it just talking to two guys that were in a band and traveling Europe when they were young, that probably was intuitive to you guys. It wasn't to me. I, I sort of felt um, that, you know, you kind of become a lawyer or you work in a bank or you do something like that. And there wasn't a lot of other options. And so that was a real eye-opening experience to me that that then got me exposed to manufacturing businesses. I stumbled my way into a, a job out here in San Francisco and, and, and little by little, I think, A, fell in love with making products, but, but B, spent 20 years of my career moving manufacturing overseas. And I think over time, the reality of those decisions and the, and the implications of them, they're kind of unavoidable. And, and so I, I, it's a long way of saying the idea maybe generally started a long time ago when I began to get involved in the making of products. But, but more specifically, I was running a company prior to starting American Giant called Chrome. Mm-hmm. It was a messenger bag business. Great brand, great product, uh, bought by a really capable guy, entrepreneurial guy. I think I, and I, I mentioned to you back in the day, sorry to interrupt, uh, <coughs> that I was a, a Chrome customer back when I was a bicycle messenger in Chicago. So I knew that. And, 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 and actually, the, uh, the, the woman that ended up running my um, whole sales department when I was there was also a, a bike messenger in huh. Chicago. And so you got your paths probably <laughs> crossed at some point. Literally. Yeah, literally, <laughs> literally. <laughs> she used to tell me about what it was like um, uh, being a bike messenger in Chicago in the depths of winter and the, the <laughs> length that she had to go to to keep her, her fingers and feet warm, but pretty pretty hectic sounding stuff. Yeah, yeah. 
But so anyway, so I, 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 at Chrome, I really, I, I began to see a couple of things in the market that I thought were interesting. I think one was that customers were, in my judgment, were prioritizing brand values and quality and were supporting brands that reflected their own values more, number one. And number two, that with the advent of e-commerce, they could go wherever they wanted to go. And so when I was a kid, it was like your options were what was in the local mall or on Main Street. But now, if I didn't like brand X, I could go to brand Y by just typing in a new URL. And so I began to think a lot, first through the lens of Chrome, about how do you keep drive loyalty? And when you bake that down, it's like, well, you make great product and you stand for something that matters. And so I, I went back originally through the lens of Chrome and presented to my owner and my board this idea that I felt the way that we build Chrome into a, a big uh, admired brand was to recommit to our values and our roots, which meant great product in American manufacturing. And the owner at the time was like, yeah, out of your mind? Like, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna, we're gonna drive margin and we're gonna go overseas. He fired me like a month and a half later because hmm. he just realized that I was just doing something. I wanted to do something different with the brand than what he wanted to do. So I think that's the time where it really got sort of front of mind for me. Like I believed in it. Um, I believed in it so much that that um, after he fired me, I had a, my daughter was a week old at that point, and I, I, I had to start the business. So at that point, it had become the horse was out of the barn. I kind of needed to do it, but hmm. that's probably when it really kind of became something that I was I couldn't ignore. So it was more of an insight into a possibility than I this sweatshirt I'm wearing sucks. I can make a better sweatshirt. It's partly that. Uh, it was partly a, um, you know, I grew up in the 70s. I'm 51. I grew up in the 70s and the early 80s, I guess. And I remember being, you guys probably do too, if you're even 10 years younger than I am, that feeling that, that there were great American brands back then that stood for things that mattered, their, their best quality in the world. You know, you came to America back then to buy the best things out there. They were the best value in the world. And I remember when I got my first pair of jeans, when I wore my first champion sweatshirt, when I put on my first pair of leather boots, this sort of sense of it said something about me. And I, I was looking at the apparel world and I was like, God, these guys are all full of shit. They're all like, you know, they have Instagram pages that purport to support this environmental cause or this human rights cause. And you look under the blankets, just one inch, and you realize that they're, what they're actually doing is the opposite of that. They're exploiting you know, the, the, the cheapest means of production, the places with the lowest environmental standards, the poorest human rights records, it's particularly true in apparel. And I just felt that consumers were smart. They, they were aware of that stuff. They were waking up to it. Um, and that I just felt kind of soulless by looking around and, and just, and, and then the final thing was I had a young kid in my hands and I wanted to be proud of my legacy. And I wanted to do something that I could, you know, she'd look back on and think that she was proud of what her dad did. And, and, then, and then to your point, that I thought customers know quality. You know, you take something out of a box, it's like putting on a good a good album or seeing a band. I mean, I always used to make, give this analogy. It's like going to see a band in a, in a bar when it's like you and 20 people and you realize like, holy shit, these guys are the real deal. People know that intuitively. They don't need to be told that something's good or bad. They know it. And I had this maybe naive faith that if you built a great product and put it in the hands of customers, they'd notice and they'd care. And whether that was going to translate into a big business or a small business, I knew it was going to translate into a business that I wanted to run. And so that was just, that was the extent of it. And, and I didn't give a lot of thought to how big it could be, but I, I had a lot of conviction that there was at least some people who cared about it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you talked about uh, meeting the IMAX guys being, sorry, sorry. You yeah, talked about, sorry, you talked about the IMAX, sorry, you talked about meeting the IMAX guys <laughs> being this turning point, but 
Was there any evidence in your younger life that you'd wind up a serial entrepreneur in general <laughs> and in manufacturing specifically? Uh, that's a good question. Um, my folks got divorced when I was really young. Uh, and my mom was um, schizophrenic in the best way between sort of wanting us to go to Harvard, but also to be able to lay down a patio. <laughs> so <laughs> there was something about this. Um, and I grew up in a town in Southern Connecticut where all the successful people were doing finance. Mm -hmm. And so there was something about the, the her wanting, I'm the youngest of three boys, wanting us to be um, capable with our hands and capable of being able to do things that I'm sure inform the satisfaction of like making something. Um, and I, you know, I think I don't, I kind of can't understate that. I think I'm really struck by just as a, as a country almost, we've lost the connection to the making of things. And I feel like that is such an important thing, emotionally, spiritually, economically, culturally. And I think that some of that tethers back to me as a kid and, and, and having the validation from her of um, making something, I think. So I probably, it probably goes back to that. It's just sort of some desire to be able to produce something at the end of a hard day rather than just, I don't know, giving some company advice or something. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I don't know. I, and, and, but it is, it's funny. I mean, I did, I'm really grateful for this. When I left banking and went into this first um, startup, it was a snowshoe company of all things. It was like, I mean, I'm so grateful for at a young age learning that because it was like, oh, like this is, this makes my heart beat. Like, I don't want to leave work. I want to do this all the time. Hmm. So that was, that was a very, one of those very lucky early moments in your career where you get the opportunity to realize what you don't want to be doing and maybe just importantly what you do. And that for me was, was being involved in the making of something. I have a couple of questions. Uh, I think I'll go with, with a fully formed one first, and then I might circle back to a little flakier one after that. But uh, I mentioned before we got started that I used to work for this advertising firm, and we did like Facebook, Instagram ads for you know direct-to-consumer products, watches, sheets, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So when I read that you were a direct-to-consumer company as well, the approach that I'm familiar with is so firmly lodged in my mind that I was curious to hear from you like a different perspective. Like our, for us, that was how you circumvented or for our clients, that's how we helped them circumvent not having these storefronts was you replace that with, with getting the word out there so that people know that they can buy uh, online. And I'm curious, like if via, you, via paid advertising, but yeah, absolutely paid advertising. And so, yeah, I'm just curious, like how you, if you rely on that or to what extent or just a different perspective on that experience. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's really, it, it, that's a that's a great question, Eric, and a, and a really complicated one in some ways. You know, we, originally, we we believe that, um, I think like a lot of our e-commerce brethren, like, oh, you sell online, you get to eliminate all the costs, and you mm -hmm. get to just pass all that value on to your customer. Not true, um, because though e-commerce as a platform is a really effective uh, fulfillment channel, right, I can very, I uh, just uh, it's, it's not a very effective effective acquisition channel. So I can I can take an order there and get you product. What's expensive is going to find you, right? And, mm -hmm. and so what, what ended up happening, we got onto this curve a little bit in our younger years. So let me back up and give a really brief history of the business. Started the company naively. I'm gonna make a great sweatshirt. Everyone's gonna love it. Uh, maybe the press will pick up on it, but word of mouth is gonna go crazy. And we launched the business in 2011, started shipping product in 2012. And we sold some sweatshirts and, and, you know, I'd see Jason show up, he'd buy a sweatshirt. And then a month later, 
he'd show up and he'd send one to Eric and one to Sarah. And, and, and I'd be like, there was enough there where I was like, that's a good sign that, that we're doing something that is making Jason not only buy for himself, but then come back and buy a couple more times. So that was enough to keep me going. Um, but it was still tiny. And then late that first year, uh, we had an article that was written in Slate magazine that called the sweatshirt the greatest hoodie ever made. And that it is not an overstatement to say that we would not be here today if it wasn't for that article. That 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 did two key things. One, it took our volume up majorly. We went from a tiny business to a to a growing smaller business, um, and it put us into a back order status for over three years. Hard to imagine. Uh, and maybe just as importantly, it convinced me that I was onto something and and gave me the will and the and the conviction to keep going. Um, so for three years, we kind of grew without having to do anything. And then we started to do what you're asking about, Eric, which is to pay into digital marketing and pay a bit more and pay a bit more and raise some money and pay a bit more. And little by little, we figured out a way to justify paying more and more and more for customers that were harder and harder to find and they were spending less and less with us. And the trend lines looked all bad there. Um, and thankfully, back in 2017, um, my, my, my primary investor um, who basically had the, 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 the vision to say, what are we doing? Like we go growth in, in and of itself, it's a false goal. It's not, doesn't tell you anything. Um, uh, so let's stop and let's focus on doing what we set out to do, which is make really good product and build a, build a brand that's gonna be here for generations and not worry about these external validation points. And I say that now looking back on it, um, with a lot of conviction at the time, it was that was a hard message to kind of reconcile because growth is attractive. You want to be bigger. You want to get, you know, the media paying attention and all this sort of stuff. But we, thankfully, relatively early in our life, turned away from that. And, and we do have digital marketing as part of our package today, but it's very disciplined. Um, so we don't we don't get over our skis financially at all on digital marketing. We've got a very, arguably, maybe even too tight a choke on how we spend digitally. But, but I think that, you know, what the, the, the trick I think is that, is that a brand like American Giant or any other brand that we all care about grows, I think, slower, just, just almost by definition. It, it is the great brands that you care about that are consumer product brands, they grow over time and you fall in love with their values and their product mix and what they stand for. They don't, they don't grow in the back of performance marketing on Facebook. That's a false horizon, I think. And and I think a lot of investors and a lot of entrepreneurs thought you could drive a, a, um, a e-commerce business the way you drive a software company and they grow incredibly quickly and they reach a billion dollar valuation. Maybe some do, but I think by and large, the, the, the brands that are going to be around in, in 20 or 30 years aren't going to grow that way. And they're going to grow on the back of more, more product validation, values validation over the long haul. So I don't know if that answers your question, Eric, but that's, that's kind of how we have approached it. It does. And of that answer and, and how good it was and how broad it was, I wanted to focus on one particular detail that just crossed my mind. You mentioned sort of, I believe you said being backordered for like three years when you, when you got this big boost from that Slate article. I'm sure some people were infuriated by that. Do you think that that scarcity was beneficial to some point, that that made people want it more? I get asked that a lot. I think it's balance, right? I mean, I think there's no question that being sold out for two years or three years creates the sense of like, wow, I got to jump. And there's, there was definitely some of that. There was also definitely, I mean, there were times there were, our, we were backwarded customers for six months and, and that that's not okay either. And, and, and so, and, and I think the thing that people don't appreciate so much is everyone was like, Oh, you know, how broken is the American 
manufacturing system that you couldn't catch up demand or how much of that was a marketing ploy. And mm -hmm. what people don't understand about that is that, so that, so just to give a little more detail than you guys probably give a shit about, but, <laughs> but that first year in that article hit, I think in December 7th or something of, of, of holiday, I literally had had my, uh, my head of operations the week before tell me that we were buried in inventory, that he was scared that we bought too much for holiday, which was a tiny amount in retrospect, but still thought that we were way too heavy. That article hit and within 24 hours, we sold everything on our shelves. We posted a kind of a, a, um, a blog on the site to kind of hammer together. It was like a WordPress blog and allowed Jason to like type in, in the comment section, I want a large black sweatshirt. Here's my credit card. We probably violated like every financial you know, <laughs> restriction out there. And all of a sudden that was inundated. And we started to sell through our allotment in our sewing facilities and our fabric buys and our yarn contracts. And so that happened in 10 days. So we, we sold that all the way through to like May or June. And so what people don't appreciate is that when that happens, what happens is like the three of us sit in a room and it's December and it's, we're talking about buying product that's going to land in July. Mm -hmm. It's going to be 90 degrees in New York and Chicago and muggy. And, and we're thinking, like, yeah, but it's Christmas time and this article hit right now. No one's going to care about us or a sweatshirt in let alone two weeks, not, not even six months. And so the, and yet, gosh, there's a lot of activity. And so you make a bet there and the bet turns out to be too small. And so that problem kept going for, for a long time. And, and so um, it was, it was a lack, the supply chain could have gotten there. It was a lack of confidence to make a really bold bet. And by the way, had we made that bet wrong and we, bought too much, we would have bankrupted the business. Mm -hmm. And so that balance was a very difficult one. And we, to be totally transparent about it, I didn't care about the demand side of that thing. I, the demand was there. Mm -hmm. I was really freaked out about what we were doing to customers who were waiting that long. And so, but but I'm sure it did help. And, and then we had, you know, we had an article that came on, I don't know, I forget now, I don't know if it was two months later or a year later, but another, another article came out saying the only problem with the greatest sweatshirt ever made is you have to wait six months to get it. And that did it again. It was like, so that just, that for the first few years of the company, that, that just stuff just kept happening. I think in retrospect, it was a real blessing, but at the time it felt like we were walking a tightrope between pissing off a lot of people. And, and, um, and, it, and one final thought about that, by the way, I'll just say that I think it was an interesting anecdote for us is that we really took a very transparent view and said, look, this is what's going on. And whenever we could, we communicate about it. And the and customers were incredibly tolerant and supportive, which was really interesting. That, you know, we had a couple of customers that were like, you know, F off, you know, I've been waiting forever. But the vast majority of customers were like, go, go. I can't wait to get it. I don't care if it takes six months. Go. Like, proud of what you're doing. So it was a cool learning in there. There's something to be said for I, what I saw people get the most frustrated with with our clients is when they would be like, no, seriously, two more weeks. But no, we're, we're definitely going to get it out. And then they just then they would take like three or four months that way. That infuriates people. I think totally, totally. if you say like, here's a realistic timeline, it's pretty far out, but bear with me. I think that goes a long way. So yeah, it's good. I totally agree with you. We, we, we had a similar thing happen two years ago, I think. We, um, um, it, it used to be that the, the most beautiful flannel, the kind that we all remember from our childhood that kind of sits in your dad's closet for 20 years that you wear for 20 years and it's faded and patinaed and soft. Those were the great kind of yarn dyed flannels that were produced in the United States um, that basically went away 30 years ago. Um, and I, when I started the company, I was, it was a, I wanted to make an iconic American product. It was either going to be a t-shirt or a flannel or a blue jean or a sweatshirt. Um, 
And I ended up in the sweatshirt because it was, the, frankly, the easiest to do. And the one that I felt was the most easy to make a difference in. The T-shirt was probably easier, but I, I didn't think you could make as much of a, of a point in the market about it. But the flannel was always something that was right. I was always wanting to do. Um, yarn dyed flannel is a very, very, that art essentially is left in the U.S. And, and we spent over a year trying to try to make a yarn dyed flannel. And, and the New York Times ended up covering that whole process in real depth. It ended up being a very long, very detailed article. But a similar thing happened to us two Christmases ago. The, the flannel was phenomenal, um, but we didn't buy enough. And we sold out, the article hit, and we just sold out in a day and a half of everything. And, hmm. and, and we did the chasing thing on that too. And I think we, at that point, felt we can't, we really can't do what you're saying, Eric. We can't like, you know, give any kind of false deadline. So I'm not sure we did it perfectly, but we were very conscious of the fact that we had worn out our welcome with, um, you know, back orders. And so anyway, and that's just, you know, that, that, as long as that, that stock completely continues to happen sometimes, you know, we have new products we launched that demand outstrips what we think we're going to do. We've got to do our best to get back quickly, but also communicate clearly to customers will we'll be back. And so, yeah. Um, Bayard, at, at the onset of the pandemic, uh, just as American Giant shifted its energy to making masks for everyone who needed them. You wrote a couple of pieces. I think I saw them on LinkedIn. Um, you wrote about kind of the already existing problems here in the United States that the crisis laid bare. Maybe you can re-encapsulate uh, what was on your mind at the time and if you think things have gotten any better. Yeah. Um, I got to make sure I, I, uh, I, I moderate my answer a little bit. But um <laughs> But it just to kind of speak as, as transparently as I can about this, I think um, I really feel like um, I wrote a, a piece in LinkedIn. I don't know what I called it, but I think it was something like, you know, we need leaders right now. And, and what I meant by that was I really feel like we've lost our way a bit in, in the U.S. about um, and I and I, you know, th this cracks open a conversation that at an intellectual level I find really interesting because I'm not totally sure what I believe. But I, you know, I grew up um, in the in the 70s and 80s kind of worshiping at the altar of libertarian economic thinking and and every trade policy was a good trade policy and unfettered capitalism lifted all boats and and uh, and I just I took that as gospel through most of my childhood, at least from a you know, a background noise standpoint, certainly through my time in finance and through most of my initial, original manufacturing jobs. Um, but I think that the essential bet that was made in, you know, kind of 1980 that said, look, we're going to, we're going to open up the floodgates and allow businesses to go make things wherever they want in the world. And, uh, and we're going to make a bet that um, being able to get $99 flat screen TVs and $20 sneakers kind of at your door in a cardboard box is going to benefit everybody. And there's obviously there is some truth in that. You know, I've got a flat screen TV that I paid 99 bucks for on my wall and I like it. Um, but I think that's an incomplete analysis that, that along the way we have really abandoned um, a lot of lower uh, middle class skilled and unskilled jobs um, and that have had just devastating consequences for the country. And, and, uh, and it, that really came home in, in really stark terms for me, I think I think what inspired one of those things that I wrote that my right when the pandemic started, my daughter got sick with a cold, and I went down to my local pharmacy to get um, uh, uh, children's Motrin, 
which is like the world's greatest product. If you ever had a kid, it's like solves everything. It's like amazing. It's, that did not exist when I was a kid. It was like, you're sick. It's like, here's a, put your head over a steam bowl of water and that'll clear your sinuses. But so anyway, I went down to, I went down to find Motrin and, and the shelves were bare. And I was like, holy shit, like what's up? So I went back, I was curious, started researching it. It turns out that, that Motrin basically, along with basically all of our pharmaceuticals are made overseas. All of them, penicillin, you know, Motrin and everything. And I, that got my wheels turning about what are we doing here? Like are, we've, we have, we've got major opiate crises in the country. We've got rural and urban communities that are on their asses, that schools aren't functioning. There are no jobs. People are passing off worse, you know, uh, um, uh, prospects to their kids than they had themselves. Uh, the, the access to opportunity in this country is not what it used to be. And, and we've got a bunch of big apparel companies that are explaining to you how moral they are about global warming or gay rights or, or uh, uh, human rights. And yet they are, they're given half a chance to go exploit manufacturing in countries that have no protections for those things at all. They'll do it in a heartbeat. And, and I just, I just, I had enough. I was, I was, you know, I was in the middle of trying to keep our company afloat. I felt like we were trying to do the right thing as a brand. We were being asked by the white house along with a few other um, companies to make masks for FEMA. And I just felt this is nuts. You know, we are, you know, we're, a, we're a clothing company. We're not a, we're not a private protection equipment manufacturer. And we're having to convert our business because we're getting a phone call from CDC and FEMA to do this stuff. And we can't get masks in the hands of, you know, nurses and doctors. And the whole thing just felt really crazy to me. And I, and I, I just think that there's a point at which we've got to have our, our big companies and our wealthy executives who are spending a lot of time, you know, preaching to the rest of us about things, start walking the walk a bit more. And so I don't know if that answered your question, Jason, but it was, I, I just, I was, I was pissed. I was, I, I felt that like, I'm just, I'm, I had gotten sick of brands presenting one thing to the world and doing something totally different in the way they run their businesses. And, and I felt that we all needed to step up and be a community again and look out for each other and, and, and try to bring some values back into our business decisions, our neighborhood decisions. And I still, you know, I still feel that way very much now. And I, I think, I hope that the pandemic is, has gotten us all to recognize the importance of, you know, of, of, of community and values and responsibility. And anyway, right. I'm not sure that's your question, but that was behind a lot of, there was a lot of energy for me at that time right. around feeling like right. we all need to step up a bit. Right. Well, certainly the pandemic, you know, cut off supply chains uh, of needed goods at a time where that was pretty crucial. But beyond a pandemic, I get the impression you see problems with this regardless, even in a normal day. So I guess going back to that kind of libertarian economic thinking, I certainly grew up thinking that cheaper goods uh, is good for everyone because then they have more money to spend on other things. The less money they have to spend on, you know, commodity products, the more money they have to take care of their family or do have free time and things like that. Um, and then also I remember I grew up, I mean, I guess it was in high school when NAFTA went into, started happening and I was like, well, isn't it good that manufacturing jobs go elsewhere and we can do smart people jobs. But I guess, I guess the question is, what's the downside of really cheap stuff in, for Americans and uh, a lack of manufacturing jobs? Yeah, it's a good question. So, so 
I'll tell you just kind of anecdotally, there's a, there's a great author named Lana Furuhar out there. She's a, she's a um, economics reporter for the financial times and is a, she often contributes to CNN on economic stuff, wrote a book uh, a few years ago entitled the makers and the takers. Hmm. And the book is basically about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but, but the story of the last 40 years has essentially been a, a shift of uh, value creation from the people that make things in this country to the, the people that take things in this country. And, you know, finance and politicians in Hollywood from people that were actually making things for many, many years. And the research for her book, she spent some time with me going through our supply chain in the Carolinas. She was relaying to me that in her research, she had talked to, um, and I hope I'm getting this right. So Rana, if I mischaracterize this, my apologies. But uh, she said that she was researching um, it, the early NAFTA negotiations, spoke to Larry Summers, who was Clinton's economic advisor, went on to be the president of Harvard, but, but, but in the early days was one of the early uh, researchers on the NAFTA composition. And she asked him about the thinking behind NAFTA. And he essentially said, well, at the end of the day, our models were showing that the benefits that would accrue to consumers would outweigh the, the, the debt, the, the negatives, but it would take some time for that to balance out. And she's like, well, it would be disruptive for a period of time. And, and she was like, what do you mean by disruptive and for how long? He said, well, our model showed uh, three or four generations. <laughs> and, and Lana was like, whoa. And so I, I don't, I, I don't want to oversimplify it. You know, th there's no question that, that, that our access to better quality and cheaper goods over the last 40 years has been a huge boom. But I think it is an incomplete analysis to say that cheap is better, that there are costs to driving cheap. There are environmental costs, there's human rights costs, there's costs to our communities. And I think we, if you look at economies like let's pick Germany as one, it has a high emphasis on skilled labor and manufacturing, has a much more dimensional economy states, higher standard of living across the economic spectrum. There's lots to learn there, I think. And I just am of a mind that, that a healthy dimensional economy in the U.S. includes unskilled and low-skilled and manufacturing jobs that can provide viable lives to people that want to put in a good day's work and want to go make clothing or, 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 uh, or forge steel or want to manufacture equipment that we ought to have an economy that allows for that. And our policies and our economic policies and our trade policies ought to support that and reflect that. And we should not make it easy for companies that are making tons and tons of money and are sitting on billions of dollars in their balance sheet to chase the, the lowest means of production, cheapest means of production that they can. And I think that's a that's a, uh, that's a conversation that we all need to be having. I don't mean to imply that we ought to, you know, cut off trade because I don't believe that. I'm a, I'm a big internationalist, but I think it's important to have a discussion that's a little bit more balanced about what were the, the implications of the, of the trade and economic decisions that they're I have a question for you about that. A while back, you mentioned about perhaps having to moderate what you were about to say. And I was curious, like you've also mentioned how it's very trendy now for a lot of these companies, whether it's genuine or not, what's very trendy is like, oh, we're very green and, and we give back and blah, blah, blah. And I believe you are genuinely trying to do that. Um, actually. And then at the same time, you'll say a lot of things about like, you know, bring these manufacturing jobs back and, and we're going to have like, you know, take pride in this being made in America. And in a time when, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be like, wait, that sounds like Trump. I don't like Trump. I like this Instagram company that promises me that they're green. Do you ever worry about like being perceived or that affecting you in a way that is not your intention? Yeah, I don't. I don't worry about it a lot, Eric. I, I, but but I mean, you're aware of it, right? I mean, you know, I, I think I think that um, that kind of nationalistic stuff I got no time for. I think it's I think it's just it's just it's not good. It's not it's not good for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about um, 
the importance of um, holding ourselves and each other accountable for the way that we're acting. And I, you know, I just, I don't know how much you guys are following the current situation in China with Xinjiang, which is, you know, there's a, there's a kind of an awful situation happening in, in the far uh, uh, Western section of China, which is there's a province there that borders right on Pakistan called Xinjiang, which is where 90 plus percent of the cotton that is produced in China is grown. And, and as a result, most of the textiles emerge from out of there. And there's, by, by most estimations, over a million um, minority Uyghurs, that's a Muslim minority group in, in Western China that's in, in forced labor camps, basically. And there's just awful stuff happening there. And, and it's one of the very few things where there's been continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration that the State Department Trump administration de declared it uh, genocide, that I think it's the sixth time in the State Department's history where they've declared a, a, company in, a country involved in genocide. And it was one of the first things the Biden administration picked up when they came into office. It's, 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 it's real, it's bad. Um, I think I think I'm right in saying this that the two largest groups that were lobbying against sanctions on the Xinjiang production were Apple and Nike. Mm -hmm. and I just hear that shit and I'm just like, guys, come on. Like there's so much cash, there's so much Instagram stuff that we've got to have the courage to have an adult-sized conversation about what we're doing. And and so I, I'm worried. I, I'm I spend my time thinking about how do we walk the walk? How do we make great product? How do we defy what people tell us we can't do? How do we speak out on issues like this when we can and say, people tell you you can't do it, they're full of shit, you can. It's harder, it might cost a bit more, you may have to pay your people a bit more, but but walk in, in a way that is consistent with the values that you're presenting to your customers. I worry a lot about that. Um, I don't worry a ton about you know some mouthpiece in DC. I'm deeply cynical of kind of everything that's going on there and, um, and want to just Spend much more energy talking to people like you guys that care, that are trying to dig into stuff, and that want to get to the bottom of things. And you know, I hope that we see a good, vibrant, vital press that's digging into stuff and it's it's exposing things, and and that we hold our big companies accountable, the ones that are have the lawyers and the balance sheets to exploit the holes in our trade agreements and allow them to kind of avoid the the taxes and the regulations and everything else that the smaller people are kind of held to. So, um, I, I want to spend as much time as I can on that and not worrying too much about what some blowhard in DC is saying. Yeah, well said. Can't argue with any of that. Maybe Jason can, you were about to say. No, I was not about to argue with any of that. <laughs> I was, I was going to say that, you know, there, there is, is a lot of glamour associated with uh, startup culture and founding companies and you've started companies, you've run companies. And I wonder if that has taught you what type of person shouldn't start their own business. Uh. I don't think so, actually. I think I think if anything, the um, the last twenty years of my career, particularly twenty five years of my career, particularly the pandemic, has been for me is is a real humbling about how many remarkable entrepreneurs and CEOs are out there of every stripe. And so I think um, my personal take on it is the people that are. Um, that have conviction and tenacity, um, and are and have some humility, um, uh, can start businesses. And I think beyond that, I don't really. I, I I don't. You know, I used to think in my younger days there was a sort of certain, excuse me, profile of an entrepreneur. I don't think that as much anymore. I mean, I've got a I've got a CFO now who is like the exact opposite of me. Mm -hmm. Um, he's highly analytical. He's disciplined. He's, um, he is just, he's rigorous. He'd be an amazing CEO. He'd be amazing. And he totally different. 
And uh, it's not to say that I'm an archetypical or a good CEO, but but so no, I don't think so really. I, I'd be interested to see what you guys well, I think, maybe, that, I think right? maybe you answered it. If you don't have tenacity, you don't have conviction, and are not humble, maybe maybe then you should. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and 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 if you are self-aware to be able to admit those things about yourself, you know. Uh, fair enough. Maybe that is the answer. Uh, I was wondering if you'd be willing to tell us a bit about web chat and the heady days of the dot-com boom. Yeah, sure. Sure. Do you want just to hear the background or do you want yeah, to ask Well, yeah, start because I don't think everyone knows what that is and I barely know what it is. Yeah. So. Uh, so I'll give you the very quick version of it. You can dig into it anywhere you want. So left banking, uh, joined this uh, snowshoe company, um, loved it, probably got an undue credit for the success of that business mm -hmm. and was then that opened up opportunities to, for me, one of which was to go and run what was a very early internet company um, that was referred to as WBS that stood for web chat broadcasting system. It was, uh, it was a remarkable thing at the time it had the largest audience on the internet. Um, and it was started by, it was a, it was a internet relay chat environment. So it was kind of an early, an early social networking company. Mm -hmm. And it was, this is, my guess is this is probably mid, mid to late nineties and started by, by the two youngest members of the homebrew computing club, a guy named uh, Bob Lash and a guy named Mike Fremont. And they were Palo Alto kids that, that were, you know, um, uh, nerdy tech guys um, that built WBS kind of as a, as a passion project where people could gather and talk and you could have speakers speak and, and, um, and it just took off. Um, but at that time there was no one knew how to make money on the internet. No one knew what that meant. Um, and I, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I was, I was, um, when I took over the company, I was, I was, our offices were above a hair salon. Mm -hmm. And so every Thursday was permanent day and you could just all the fumes, like, <laughs> you know, you almost like overwhelm the office right next to a Trader Joe's. And one day the guys, that had started eBay came in and pitched us because they wanted to have this new kind of shopping environment, sit right adjacent to us and maybe tap into our audience. And they gave me the whole pitch on it. I said, uh, guys, best of luck. Sounds like a great idea, but I don't think it's a fit for it. And about, about a month later, they were on the cover of Business Week and worth a billion dollars. So it's one of the many misses I had in my career. But so that business, we, we were able to begin to get a, um, a business around it, some early advertising. I think we had M&Ms, uh, I think Ford and a couple of advertisers. So began to kind of unlock the business model that we had some advertisers come onto that. Um, and eventually um, it was at a time where back then all the search engines from Excite and InfoSeek and Yahoo and Google were all clamoring for audiences. They really cared about what they thought of as stickiness and time on site. And WBS had a very sticky audience that was around forever. And so we eventually were able to sell that to uh, to Disney by way of InfoSeek. And, and it was a good outcome. But it was a, it really was a, you know, it was a something I get very little credit for. Mike and Bob get the credit for that, for a great idea. And um, and I just kind of shepherded, shepherded it to a home um, in the late 90s. But it was also pretty great timing on that sale, right? Because I feel like on the heels of it, there were, several other companies that did very similar things and then WBS kind of disappeared, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we, it was, um, I'll tell you just to get a bit more anecdotes around that. So we actually had a sale lined up with another search engine, um, that at the 11th hour, literally the night before we were going to be done, 
uh, they pulled the sale. And I think we had, uh, again, probably 40 employees mm-hmm. and everybody had sort of gotten this mindset, oh, this is sales happening tomorrow and mm-hmm. we're going to go be mm-hmm. a part of, we're going to get out of the out of the hair salon place and have you know, shiny offices and free granola every morning and all this kind of stuff. And the next morning they called us and said, we're not doing the deal. And that was, that was one of those moments in your life as a leader where you have to really dig deep and figure out, wow, how do I not only stand my people back up and get them working again and, and starting just from a dead stop at yourself too. And feeling like, you know, I had visions of, you know, a great career moment when people would allow a buyer to achieve this thing and all these great stuff that suddenly was gone. So that was a very difficult time. Yeah. And it, it, it ended up being a very good outcome. So we were able to, to get ultimately, I think a better sale, Yeah. but boy, that it took, it took six months to do it too. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you're right. And then when we got it sold, it was like, it was good that we got it sold I think, at that point because um, you didn't want to be independent for much longer, given the dynamics of the environment at the time. Yeah. So before that happy outcome and just after the 11th hour cancellation, how did you go about that process of remotivating people and yourself? It was I, I, honestly, I think it was one of the hardest career moments of my life. I think it was really because you get, you know, all these things to crowd in, right? I mean, you end up doing the math about a sale. You're like, I'm going to make some money here. You end up thinking about the pressure comes off because to your guys' point, you're an independent company. You kind of need to find a home because there's this great game of musical chairs that's happening that there's fewer and fewer potential acquirers. And so you think you've done a good thing for your investors and your employees. You've gotten a home there. And I think it was just one of those things that you kind of don't have a choice. You're the person that everyone's going to look to. And you, you know, I, I, I kind of remember I'm, I've always been an early riser and I, uh, I got up really early the next morning and knew the news was bad. And I spent a couple of hours just thinking what I was going to say and, you just kind of, you know, put a brave face on it and go. And maybe that's the fourth hallmark, by the way, of, of an entrepreneur is a just relentless optimism. I do think that that is true about me. And I think I found a way to be like, screw it. We're going to keep going. And I think that's so, I don't know, but it, I'm sure, you know, I did an imperfect job doing it, Eric. And you just kind of keep, keep saying it to you convince yourself and keep going. And we, you know, and, and there were some great people there, I mean, Bob and Mike and, kind of Lee Pearson and all these guys were just awesome. And they, they just dug in with me and it was suddenly you're in a foxhole with a bunch of people and, mm-hmm. and, you know, Wendy Lash and all these remarkable people that were like pulling on it with me. And so it's suddenly, you know, you strengthen numbers and you start to keep going. So. Yeah. Good. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. You, you kind of have to have the right constitution and attitude and then do the best you can with what you have. I mean, that's, yeah. there's no particular secret beyond that, I would guess. That's, I think that's right. I mean, it's probably like, you know, I don't know your guys' band story, but my guess was there were probably some days there where you were like, does anybody care? And you got to kind of stand up and keep going. And you get- Yeah, we knew that nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> it was clear from the very beginning. <laughs> we were really bad. <laughs> when, when skinheads started getting on stage and, and teach, trying to teach us how to play songs that they wanted to hear instead of what we were playing, that was a pretty direct communication yeah. message to you, Rudy. Um, I love that. Uh, I was wondering that period of the, the kind of the dot com boom. I don't know my American business history, but do you suppose that, that was the beginning of the period of time where selling your company was kind of like became the American dream rather than building a company and expecting to run it for the rest of your life and just make really good stuff? Yeah, I, it's like part of it. I think that was. You know, living in, in San Francisco at the time, I mean, I, I got here in 1992, I think, and the city was so different then. And people tell me, you know, that's been a part of a continuum, but that period of the late 90s was such a crazy time when 
rents were skyrocketing and everybody thought that, you know, it was just a pathway to getting rich, just building a, starting a company and selling it. And we're kind of in version two or three of that now where, you know, all these companies are kind of popping up and raising tons of private equity. I, I don't know. I, you know, I just think that, um, you know, the, the, uh, I think that that has become part of the narrative. And I think what's lost in that is so much of the, the substance of what we're trying to do at American Giant, I think, which is, um, I don't know, that's, it sounds sort of shitty saying it, but just something that's of more substance that just is, is, is going to be around and is, is built on some values and it thinks about all your constituents. I don't, that, that, that comes across poorly, but I just, I think there is this sort of fizziness that's happening in, in, in the American economy now validation is about how much money you raise and how fast you grow and not about what you stand for and whether you whether you're you know you're actually walking the walk and and i think the, the good news is i think I, i'm very hopeful actually about things like this where you have these long format discussions that people are tuning into and podcasts and stuff that i think is a real indication of average everyday people saying i want to get back to substance when you're about to things that matter i have the tolerance for deep in-depth conversations or I understand about paying for quality or I want to support things that represent my own values. I think consumers are getting out in front of brands on that, that they're starting to um, be more um, demanding of, of better quality things and more substantive, substantive things. So I'm, I'm actually long-term very optimistic about the changes that are happening in the, in the domestic market and the implications for businesses. Total tangent question. You mentioned briefly like podcasts there and <clears throat> sort of that being a sign that people are in for something a little more in depth. Um, I was curious if there are any that you uh, listen to or enjoy in particular. Uh, this is sort of um, front of mind because I just, I just was on with, with Guy Raz, but I, I love how I built this podcast for a couple of reasons where um, I got, I got hooked on that podcast because I listened to the Sam Adams story. This podcast came out two or three years ago and I just, it, it changed my beer drinking for starters um, but I also just loved, it reminded me of the, of my kind of exposure to IMAX when I was young, just this sort of sense of total, uh, excitement and passion about listening to stuff. And I think he does a remarkable job, um, cracking open the entrepreneurial experience in a accessible way and in a humble way. And so that, that's one that I love, I really love. Um, and I think I get to hear about and learn about cool brands like Justin's and Sam Adams and others. Um, and then just more generally, I, I tend to be more topical about stuff. So I, I think um, I, I've been appreciative of um, some longer format discussions that are about topics that I care about. Um, so that can be everything from health and wellness um, to uh, management philosophy. And I think the thing I've been struck by that I, is not a, um, an insightful comment, but just I, I, part of my daily routine now is I go for a very long walk in the morning. Um, to kind of make my phone calls and those stuff. And if I have a day that's open or if I'm up particularly early, I'll take half an hour, an hour and just listen to something. Um, and that opportunity and my interest in, in, in going really deep on a topic is so different than I feel like what I've been experiencing for the last 20 years of media, this sort of you know fast format stuff. And, and so um, so I, I just reflecting myself, I think that's really cool and encouraging. Like there's a, my, my wife just connected me to it podcast about Irish history that goes back to the very, she's Irish, hmm. the very um, early founding days of Ireland. And I found myself listening to like, you know, learning about early, early Irish history. It's just, and it's awesome. It's mm -hmm. like awesome. So 
Yeah, there's not any particular one I think that I'm, I'm fanatical about as more as, as much as I'll, I'll get on a topic or some more for something, and I'll go deep on it. Yeah. I, I agree. I just think it's a fascinating time. You can pick any person almost or anything and immediately have like a, just a, something that you'll learn and enjoy and can go really in depth on. That's just, I've never experienced a, a time like that before. That's incredible. It's really cool. Even Even going back to you know, when you had the luxury of, of if you went to college to sit down and listen to professors, this is a level deeper than that, that I think is just, mm-hmm. it's very gratifying. So Indeed. Uh, I, I know we've, you've take, we've taken up a lot of your time, but we can't let anyone get out of here uh, without talking about music. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, I, I, we first met some years back at South by Southwest and chatted over beer and loud rock music. And I don't know if I invented that we talked about punk rock. Did we talk about punk rock? Were you into punk rock? Well, uh, you're going to date me now, Jason. No. Um, I don't. I think we may have actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but I. So I would say I've got a fairly like wide range of of music that I enjoy, and I've definitely had my. Uh, and I sort of was interested. I didn't know that you guys had kind of a ska reference in your in your band, but <laughs> um, but I kind of came up uh, on the punk side of things. I think is sort of being a. Um, a disciple of the Bay Area punk scene, so I was a you know I was a Jawbreaker fan, mm-hmm. Operation Ivy fan. Cool. Um, and then through different aspects of my life, kind of got uh, ended up hiring a CFO out of Fat Records. Who? who, uh, who I, 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 sorry, I'm just gobsmacked that Fat Records had a CFO. <laughs> he, <laughs> was, he, he was too. He was too. Jesus. <laughs> That is a that is a story for another day, and I will let him tell it. Uh, but uh, he was too. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Okay, sorry. Um, uh, but but um, he is a uh, he now runs a a, uh, a very successful um, and very awesome uh, uh, gay sports bar in the Castro called High Tops. But but he kind of re inspired my kind of more modern version of a lot of the um, the fat bands, but. But yeah, but I, I think you can kind of root me in the in the Operation Ivy, mm-hmm. Jawbreaker, and then and then and then all the tendrils that went from there. You know, Jets to Brazil and, mm-hmm. and Rancid and Bad Religion and stuff like that. But but that's probably and, and then if you want to really date going back to you know the Ramones and stuff like that earlier. But yeah, um, that's probably my my punk rock bona fides. Yeah, I actually had uh, Blake on the Modernist Society back when it wasn't a podcast well i guess it was a podcast but it was more of a dc based live event thing and he was uh in the band jaws of life it was kind of in between no other ones, so um, that's pretty awesome yeah yeah so i wonder i think we did speak about that i'd forgotten about south by southwest that's right jason that's when you and i first met i think that's right yeah but what are you listening to these days what what's new that you like oh man what am i listening to these days i'm listening to it's boring i'm listening to a lot of audiobooks now so i'm actually music is kind of for whatever reason during the pandemic i have been um hmm. um listening it, 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 the my whole um i'm going through a total like management change and so i've been reading a bunch of management business books um kind of human potential books which sounds a little bit tony robbinsy hmm. i don't mean that critically but it's not really so much that so I've really been doing, um, and I've been, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually, that I've, my music has been, I've been basically not listening to music for the last year. It's an overstatement, but basically haven't been. And I've been listening to a ton of audiobooks. So, and, and when it does come up, it's, you know, I'm, I'm in a, I'm in a bit of a, of a Dwight Yoakam phase right now. And, and, uh, so there's a little bit of Dwight Yoakam and then a lot of stuff for my kids. So there's like a huge mm-hmm, amount sure. of, um, kids bop, whatever that's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kids bop. <laughs> 
<laughs> kids, mom. It's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The four-year-old will, will uh, she'll spin some, she'll spin some good mixes for you. I keep trying to get my two-year-old nephew to listen to like 1910 Fruit Gum Company instead of like modern <laughs> kids music. Moderate, moderate success. We'll see. Well, it's funny. I mean, I keep saying to my my my, my oldest kid is girl was ten, and I keep saying to her like Agnes. I actually have like I've got some good music to play for you. She just could not be bothered by mm-hmm. my by the things I want to expose her to. So I'm, I'm hoping one day that's going to change. She is not interested in my musical taste at the moment at all. Sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you again for taking the time, Byard. Really appreciate it. Guys, and, yeah, uh, thank you. Continued luck with the American Giant Empire. What is the website? AmericanGiant.com. It is. It is American-Giant.com. And there are stores in New York and Soho and Berkeley and San Francisco and another four opening this year. So you can also see it in person, too, if you're in any of those markets. Excellent. One in San Francisco on Chestnut Street. Excellent. Thanks, you guys. It was great talking yeah. to you guys. You too. Someday so I much. need to hear about your guys, uh, your musical history, because I don't know the details there. I'd love to have a similar discussion about that. We can do that. Maybe when we can drink in person again. So. Yeah, you're here. Thanks, you guys. All right. Take care. Good, yeah. talk, good talking to you guys. Thanks. Bye. Come on, come on, come on.